Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Hey, as we begin, let me open our time with a scripture reading. Thank you for joining us in the singing. I know you've had opportunity already to say hello to one another. Uh, I want to welcome you here. My name is Tom. I'm the pastor at the Erickson Covenant Church. And I want to share with you an opening psalm. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask From the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's amazing to think that because you are our light and salvation, the stronghold of our lives, there's nothing we need be afraid of. And yet we recognize that we often struggle with fear, with insecurity, with the unknown. We may not have armies advancing against us, thankfully, but in our own lives, there can be things that seem to pile up, push in, threaten to crush us. Relationship struggles, ongoing worries about family members, Maybe employment or financial concerns or maybe health crises that we continue to face over and over. We could fill in the blank today of the things that seem to be overwhelming in our lives. And in the midst of all that today, as we are gathered together now, would we be able to hold on to the fact that you are our light and our salvation? You are the stronghold of our lives. And because of that, though all these things are truly happening, we do not need to be afraid. Rather, we can seek the one thing that truly matters, which is to be with you, to gaze upon your beauty, to dwell in your temple. That is our desire today, to commune with you, to connect with you, to connect with each other in you, even as we move now into our third message in this series we've been exploring. Would you just bless our ears today and our hearts? We'd be receptive to all that you have for us. And bless my words as I speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I've got a question for you, and you need to post this in the chat. What's the most extreme thing you've ever done? 
most extreme thing. You swim with sharks, maybe? Anyone? Uh, I do want to know if you did. Uh, 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 maybe you've gone cliff jumping. Or, or maybe you've uh, purchased sketchy food from a street vendor. Maybe that was your most extreme thing. Post it in the chat. Have you gone bungee jumping? Uh, skydiving? Have you done the extremely risky thing of trying to correct someone's political views on Facebook? Maybe, that, maybe that's your... Okay. What's the most extreme thing you've ever done? Now, maybe you aren't into the whole extreme thing, but maybe you can think of a time when you jumped on the sled and you threw cash into the wind and you went roaring down the hill, or maybe you decided to get on that horse and you've always been petrified of horses, and so you got on that horse and you rode around the corral and you overcame, you, you did something super extreme. Or maybe, maybe it's just that you were willing to try a new recipe when you had guests coming over. Or perhaps that is just a little too extreme. <laughs> well, I'm not an adrenaline junkie by any means, but I've been shamed onto enough rides by Ethan and Silverwood over the years, rides that I wish had never been invented. I think, who thought this stuff up? But I've got shamed onto a few, so I've had to endure. But back in the middle of September, um, we, our boys and I, decided to get a little crazy. And so we went ziplining. Have you ever done this? Gone ziplining, swooshing through the air from one high platform to the next, flying upwards to 70, 80 kilometers an hour, and then jolting to a stop just before it's too late. They wrap the trees in big mattresses just to emphasize the fact you don't want to hit it. Our our friends, uh, Brian and Dan, invited us to go with them, and so we decided it was time to put our guts to the test. Dan regaled us with stories in advance of how we'd feel as we rocketed through the void. And he assured us that the zipline company only lost two or three people a year. Wink, wink. Please don't sue us, zipline company. That was a joke. Okay. All right. So we talked about it a few times. We set a date. And I thought I had a sense of what it would be like, you know? I, I thought, yeah, I get it. But friends, I need to tell you something. Knowing about something... And actually, knowing something personally are two very different things. Knowing they're going to put a harness on you up here, but then experiencing it down here are two very different things. And actually, it can be a bit of a painful difference. Knowing that you are going to theoretically be standing up on a platform hundreds of feet up in the air and then just jumping away from that platform with nowhere to go but down and then actually experiencing those gut-wrenching moments of gravitational momentum are different things. Friends, I could tell you all that it feels like on zipline number four to hang upside down as you glide, the unsettling feeling of letting go with your arms and your fears and letting go of all common sense and hanging upside down as you're ripping through the void, the feeling of solitude and darkness that was enhanced because we happened to be ziplining on some of the smokiest days of the year. So these long ziplines, you couldn't actually see where you'd come from. You couldn't actually see where you were going. You're just rocketing through and the rising, whining pitch of the cable gets higher and higher as you go faster and faster. And there's the feeling of tears that are rising in your eyes, which is from the wind, of course. It's from the wind. Yeah, you know. And, and then all the questions that erupt in the middle of the 2,400 feet that you're rocketing. Questions like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? And 
What would it take for me to plummet to my depth? Death, rather, in the depths down there. Well, all that I could describe to you. But until you've experienced it for yourself, you're never really going to know it. I encourage you all to go ziplining. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) Because knowing about ziplining, me telling you a few stories, but actually ziplining, those are two different things. Cannot be replaced. Well, here in October, we're exploring our covenant identity as a church. Four aspects that make us covenant, make us who we are, because we recognize that our identity, who we are, influences all that we do. All that we do, in fact, flows from our identity. Back in week one, we explored our identity as mission friends, that we're a connectional church, that we're committed to following Jesus in his mission together as friends. And last week, we anchored our identity in the solid rock of God's word, remembering that we as covenanters are biblical, that we affirm the centrality of the word of God and we seek to live under its influence in all that we do. Well, today, we're going to dive right into the heart of things, exploring how we believe that it's necessary to experience God personally in order to follow Jesus. The word that's sometimes used to describe this personal experience is the word devotion. That we are devoted, heart, mind, strength, to the God who loves us. That we experience God devotionally. And so that's the third aspect of our covenant identity. We are devotional. Now, experiencing God devotionally Knowing God as a person, both individually and as a church, is central to the Christian life. Yes, being biblical is essential. That's what we explored last week. But because we don't just make stuff up about God, uh, the things that we believe about God are, are rooted in what God has said about himself, the way he's revealed himself to us through the Holy Scriptures. But in a very important way, we also say that being biblical Just being biblical is not enough. Yes, we need to know the right things about God, but it is possible to know all the right things about God, but not know God, not be in a relationship with God. And so to my opening point, knowing about God cannot replace knowing God for yourself for ourselves. And that, my friends, is what we are all about as a covenant church. It's what we've always been about, introducing people to Jesus so that they can get to know Jesus. They can follow Jesus personally. And all through this October series, I've been trying to link us back into a bit of our history, not to to, to get too deep into the weeds, but I want you to know how these things that have shaped our identity, that our mission friends from the past They paved this way for us as covenanters, and we now stand today on their shoulders. So today, as we explore this focus in a life of devotion, we can point to some very important themes that have influenced early mission friends and led to the formation of the Evangelical Covenant Church. See, most of the early covenanters were Lutherans from Sweden. Now, I don't know if that's your background. It's not mine. We've been, you know, brought into the family, and the the Evangelical Covenant Church is a very multi-ethnic family of churches now. But in its early beginnings, most of them were Lutherans from Sweden. Now, by the the 17th century or so, the um, 
early passion of Luther and all those people who were part of the, the Protestant Reformation, by the 17th century, a lot of that passion had fizzled out. It had been replaced by a very scholastic, very heady intellectual faith, which had largely lost its heart. Things had gotten stale, and much of the inner life, the devotional life, had been squeezed out in favor of heavy doctrinal arguments and excessively minute theological definitions. Not a lot of fun. Many were Christians in name only. It was part of being, you know, a Swede. In fact, they didn't even know if the pastor offering them communion on Sunday believed in Jesus at all. It was just maybe a state job for him. But the Holy Spirit never abandons his people, never abandons his church. And from within this dry, cracked church, not just in Sweden, but in Germany, in that area in Europe, From that dry and cracked church came something new and something life-giving, a movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. It was called pietism, and it began to grow, and it focused on the importance of personal piety, of personal devotion, a dynamic inner life. And these spirit-filled Christians sought to restore to the church a number of long-lost treasures. Um, the pietists urged and they practiced a renewed emphasis on the personal study of the Bible as God's life-giving word. That it wasn't something that just the professionals dealt with, but that we personally took it in. They placed great emphasis on the priesthood of all believers, emphasizing that we are all sharing in this ministry as Jesus' followers. This was in contrast to how the clergy had really become state employees. Um, They urged and they practiced a more kind treatment of all people, particularly people who didn't believe the same as them, which was actually quite revolutionary. It's not for us today as inheritors of this, but it was pretty revolutionary then. They also began to emphasize the importance of the devotional training of the heart alongside the doctrinal training of the mind for those who are being trained as pastors. That it isn't good enough for them just to know all about the Bible, but they need to know God himself. Well, when you study the pietist movement, you can see how much it has shaped us as covenanters. Now, we aren't the only ones who are shaped by, by German pietism, by Lutheran pietism. It had a tremendous effect on the Baptist churches, evangelical free churches, and other evangelical movements as well. Pietism has influenced many of us, but few churches have been more influenced by pietism than the evangelical covenant church. Simply put, though this language may be new to you, we are pietists, which is another way of saying that we are a devotional people. We hold that this devotional life, this inner life with Christ, is the living center of our life together. You can see that in the covenant affirmations, which I've encouraged you to read. Two of them affirm the necessity of new birth in Christ and another one, the conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. Those are two of our six affirmations reminding us that we value highly this living relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a bit of our historical background. I wanted to keep bringing that in because this places who we are and it reminds us of our influences. But 
we always have to ask the question, as we highlighted last week, where is that written? Where is it written? Well, it's actually written all over the place, but I want to look at just one today, and that's from Paul's little letter to Christians in the city of Colossae. In this, he says these words, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The reason why we are a devotional people is that our lives have been hidden with Christ in God. There's so much packed into this little phrase. You see what Paul's doing here? When he says, since you've been raised with Christ, as well as when he says, for you died, he's actually referring back to something very specific. A little earlier in the letter, he had reminded them of their own baptism when they were baptized themselves as new believers. He said this just back in chapter two. He says, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When Paul, in this first part of Colossians, says uh, the bit about, for you died, you have been raised, he's talking about their baptism. He's not only reaching back to what he's already said, but he's pointing them back to their own experience of being buried and rising with Christ in baptism. That the waters of baptism represent a death, their death, Christ's death, so that there's someone new who's now alive, living this resurrection life even today. Very interesting, the Greeks even spoke of death as being hidden in the earth. A man died and was hidden now in the earth. And it's like Paul takes up this idea, but now uses it as a reference to baptism. That when we die in Christ and we are raised in Christ, our lives, instead of being hidden in the earth, they're hidden with Christ in God. This is the experiential and the biblical backdrop to what he's telling them is true of them. That their lives are now hidden with Christ in God. Your life and my life, hidden with Christ in God. Well, what does that mean? I mean, there's depth here that I think we could plumb for a long time. But it means at least this, that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and because of our union with him through baptism, we have been relocated to a brand new home, a brand new, a brand new location. Our reality has shifted. We've now been brought into something unique, something special, maybe even something in a way that is secret and hidden and even a bit mysterious, not in the sense of being elitist, but in the sense of like we don't even fully understand all that has happened because we have died and been risen with Christ. But this is where we are now. What does that mean for us? It means that God has wrapped himself around you. That the triune God has become your dwelling place. That the Father loves you intimately, 
knows you intimately, loves you deeply, and he delights in your presence every moment of every day, and he will do so for the rest of eternity, that you are at home in him. What this reminds us of is this. When we speak of being a devotional people, it's because, (laughs) this is beautiful, it's because we love and serve a devotional God. A God who has wrapped himself around us and is completely devoted to us, to you. That his devotion of us comes first. His knowledge of us comes first. J.I. Packer, a, a man I had the privilege of studying under, but recently passed away, one of our late great theologians, he said this in his old book, Knowing God. He said this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and he continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. That's what it means to be hidden with Christ in God. You and I are known and loved and our devotional lives are, are rooted first and foremost in God's devotion of us. But listen, what Paul says here is that we're not just hidden in God, but we're hidden with Christ in God. I like to think of it this way. We've got a roommate. You move in, and and across the hall, there's this guy named Jesus. And we now live in this house together. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And there's so much in here to meditate upon, to soak in, to let it reshape our hearts and minds. That this is what it means for us now to have died and been raised with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, that we're with Christ. He is with us as we have been wrapped in the Father's care and love. And that's what it means when we say that we are a devotional people, that this reality forms the very center of our life together, that we're a church that enjoys this hidden life with Christ, and we want others to enjoy it too. Well, how do we do this? Paul actually gives us some direction right in these opening verses. Notice the two times he uses the word set. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. He also says, set your minds on things above. This setting choosing to set your heart and mind on the Father who loves you, on Jesus who's with you, on the Holy Spirit who fills us all. In many ways, this is the practice of a devotional life. Have you ever witnessed real devotion in someone or something? Have you ever stumbled into a restaurant and seen two heads close together? Maybe a young man and young woman, and they're just so absorbed in each other, literally the restaurant could burn down and they're not going to really notice. Or maybe you have a dog, And that dog is completely devoted to you. And every morning when you get up and every night when you go down, you realize here is complete and pure devotion. Or maybe it's an artist who's in the flow state. And you see that kind of focus and attention where all the rest of the world seems to fall away and they're in that moment. This is the kind of setting 
that Paul is calling us to, to set our hearts and minds in this kind of devotional practice where we focus our heart and our attention on who God is, on where we are, on who we are as people who are with him in this hidden home, on this secret friendship, this special relationship we have with God. Now, this isn't about ignoring life around us or becoming, as the saying goes, so otherworldly-minded that we become no earthly good. No, in fact, as we read further, we're going to see how practical, how earthy, how real life this stuff is. But it starts by getting our hearts and minds focused on who Jesus is, the one who is with us, the one who is living with us in God, that we died and have now been raised. And this whole new way of life is shaping what we now do. And to make this more accessible, I want to offer you a really practical application that to set your heart and mind, because that can sound, you know, a bit hard to grasp, to set your heart and mind, I want to invite you to practice daydreaming in the Gospels. Uh, Maybe you've never thought of meditation in this way, but really to practice daydreaming in the Gospels. What it looks like very simply is this. Take a Gospel story. Pray. Ask God to meet you there. Ask Jesus to meet you in that story. And then just read through that story slowly, maybe once, maybe twice. And then just spend four, five, maybe ten minutes daydreaming with Jesus in that story. Wander around in it. Wonder about it. See it. Feel it. Smell it. Just observe what you see and keep up a a bit of an ongoing dialogue with Jesus about what you're noticing. Just daydream through the Gospels with Jesus and recognize that as you are doing so, you are gazing upon Christ himself. You are spending time in the Word with Jesus. You are setting your heart and setting your mind on the one who is with you in God. You're not there to squeeze out some deep truth. You're not there to study it even. You're just there daydreaming in the Gospels. This kind of devotional meditation has been so helpful for brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as people exploring faith down through the centuries. David Benner, an author that has been so influential in my life, he says this, there's no substitute for meditation on the life of Jesus if we seek to ground our God-knowing in the Gospels. Gospel meditation is gazing on Christ. When Jesus compared himself to the bronze serpent that God told Moses to make for the children of Israel so that they could gaze upon it as they were dying of snake bites, that's in John chapter 3, one of the things he was saying was that gazing on Christ in trust and devotion allows the Spirit of God to take his life and make it ours. God gave us Jesus as the divine image so that we could gaze upon him and thereby come to know God. And that is why gospel meditation holds such transformational power. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We're called to set our hearts and minds on things above. And then Paul goes on in the next verses, which we don't have time to explore today, things that you could organize around the word put. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your old nature, the the things from before, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. Since you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge 
of the image of its creator. And the rest of these verses in chapter 3, Paul just gets really practical about not lying to each other, but putting on love and caring for one another and speaking the truth to each other. He is explaining how this putting is really a product of this devotional life. That it flows out of this identity as people whose lives have been hidden with Christ in God, who have set their hearts and minds on Him, has this real profound effect on our relationships, on our lives going forward. Well, I want to ask you a question. How's that going for you? That life hidden with Christ in God, the setting of your hearts and minds. This might be new language, but how is that going for you? Each week during this series, I've been sharing a covenant question questions that I think can anchor us as we go forward. You know, during our first week, our connectional week, the question was, who are our mission friends? Last week, uh, a question that has been shared by covenanters down through uh, many years is the biblical question, where is it written? But today, knowing that we are a devotional people, the covenant question I want to share with you is this. How goes your walk? How's your walk with Christ going? How's your devotional life going? Now, I know that a question like that can immediately make some of us feel ashamed or feel like we've got to make stuff up. Please put that all aside. Rather, hear the question for what it is. That we can ask of each other, how goes your walk? Because we are concerned as a people that we deepen in our lives in Christ that we can actually come to each other and share with each other how our walk is going. I didn't just make this question up. This has been a question that mission friends have asked all through our history as pietists and as covenanters. Why? Because our commitment to this dynamic devotional life isn't about a private, solitary faith. It's about us as people, us as mission friends, seeking to encourage one another as we follow Jesus together, as we live this hidden life with Christ in God. And so that's the bit of the challenge here at the end, to actually, for us, as the Erickson Covenant Church, to practice using this question as a mission friend. So find a mission friend this week, next week, and if you have to just blurt it out, blurt it out. Just say, how goes your walk? You know, Tom's been talking about this covenant stuff and, and I'm going to ask this question. How goes your walk? To ask the question, to listen and to pray. And don't judge. Don't try to offer a bunch of advice. Just listen prayerfully and then share honestly as they ask you the question about your own experience. Sometimes we are way too shy about this stuff. Our life has been too private. And so my invitation to all of us is that we open it up that we share maybe in our community groups, maybe in a small group of mission friends, that we ask the question intentionally, how goes your walk? I hope you can see how this all flows out of what we've learned so far about covenant identity, this shared devotional life where we'd actually have the, the, the permission and maybe even the encouragement to ask that question, how goes your walk? It comes because of our commitment both to being connectional and being biblical that we're committed to each other and we're committed to living our lives under the authority of Scripture. And because of that, we can share honestly and transparently with each other. Well, I've given you a lot today. I've given you something to practice, daydreaming the Gospels. I've given you a covenant question, how goes your walk? But I want to offer you one more thing because I know some of you have been watching this together. You're having like a watch party. 
Or maybe in your community group this week, you'll be gathering. And so I want to just offer you a discussion question for you, perhaps after the service is done today, to talk to one another about this. And this is the group discussion question I want to encourage you to have. How comfortable are you with discussing your walk with Christ? Talk about that. How comfortable are you? Or, you know, maybe it'll spawn other questions like, what makes it so hard? Or in what ways do you think that's actually really important? And maybe in, in what other ways does that make you afraid? But how comfortable are you with discussing your walk with Christ? Friends, our vision as a church is that we would experience God personally, that you would know God, that you would experience the beauty and the freedom of this life we have hidden with Christ in God, that we as a people would be devoted to the God who is devoted to us. That's our desire. But you know, that's Jesus' desire for us too. Right before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed for us. Right at the end of John chapter 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer, where Jesus prays for his own immediate followers, but then extends that prayer to us. Right at the very end, This is what Jesus prayed. He said, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that, listen to this last phrase, the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's Jesus' vision for us as his followers, that the Father's love for Jesus himself would be in us, permeating us, filling us, keeping us so that he himself, Jesus, would also be in us and we can share this life together as his loved friends, as his beloved brothers and sisters, as his church. The worship team is going to come back now and lead us in a, in a final song. And as they do, I hope you can hear today that our life as a devotional people is rooted in the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are devoted to us. And friends, that is worth singing about. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.